You're listening to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This is episode 1607, Personal Transformation for Social Change. My guest today is David Peter Stroh, author of Systems Thinking for Social Change from Chelsea Green Publishing. During the conversation, we talk about the importance of using systems thinking to reach long-term goals that transform society. To accomplish this end, we need to create a series of small successes rather than quick fixes that are in line with and build towards our larger vision. Along with this, we look at the impact we can have on positive outcomes by taking personal responsibility for our own role as part of the problem. We close with David sharing five ways in which human systems differ from natural systems which we should consider as permaculture practitioners. If you work with any kind of system involving people, yourself included, this is an episode to kick your feet up, take notes from, and then give me a call so we can talk about it. There's a technical, heady, yet accessible conversation ahead. Before we begin, if you find this podcast, or any in the archives, inform or transform your thoughts and thinking, there are several ways to help the show. The first is through Patreon, where you can become a member and receive a variety of benefits, including first access to episodes and discounts to partnering vendors. The second is to get involved with the Permaculture Podcast community. Join the conversation at facebook.com forward slash the Permaculture Podcast or on Twitter where the show is at PermacultureCST. I've also recently joined Instagram and I'm posting pictures on there as Permaculture Podcast. You can also leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app and share a link to some episodes that have changed your life with your friends and family on social media. Now then, on to David. I'll join you again afterwards. Then, David, if you could share with us a bit of your biography and background, how you got into this work with systems thinking and systems theory, and then we can take the conversations from there to discuss your book. Oh, okay, great. Thanks, Scott. I actually was going to become an urban transportation planner and have uh, degrees in both urban studies, uh, urban planning, and civil engineering. Uh, I wanted to help people connect more effectively with each other, with their broader environment, and at the time felt that transportation was the way to do it. I subsequently uh, learned about the field of organization development when I was a graduate student at MIT and was very interested in the role of the integrator in society and discovered that my passion was really about helping people connect more around work and how they work together, both from a, an engineering and design point of view, as well as from a social and psychological and ultimately spiritual perspective. So I uh, shifted my focus while I was in graduate school to the field of organization development, and that led me to Peter Senge and other colleagues with whom I co-founded the consulting firm of Innovation Associates in the late 1970s, which led to Peter's book, The Fifth Discipline, in 1990 and a subsequent popularization of various learning disciplines, including systems thinking. And I, at the time, when, when we began doing this work, our focus was more on the business world and introducing the learning disciplines, including systems thinking, to business leaders. I subsequently became much more interested and maybe had always been more interested in applying these ideas to social change, both the principles and the tools of systems thinking. So beginning in the early 1990s, I actually wrote an article on why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And as we've seen, certainly the problems of income inequality racial inequality and so on have continued to grow and, and become more serious, certainly in the U.S., perhaps as well as, as in other capitalist societies. So I uh, have really focused really more now for the past 15 years more exclusively on applying systems thinking to a range of social issues from homelessness to K-12 through education 
public housing, um, well, affordable housing, I should say, public health, criminal justice reform, conflict resolution, and other areas of social concern. Why do you have this interest and focus on social change and applying it to these systems? Was there a like a foundational moment in your life that gave you like an epiphany of where you could do good, if you will, applying systems thinking and what you had learned over the years to these problems? Well, I think I grew up in a tradition, particularly from my mother's family, of a philanthropic orientation, making the world a better place, and had decided from early on, I think along with my most of my other colleagues at Innovation Associates, then when we when we focused on the private sector, it would certainly be on, you know, neutral or constructive industries versus defense or tobacco or something like that. But then I remember doing some work with a consumer products company in the early 90s where they were creating a new deodorant and spending millions of dollars to do that. And these were very nice people. They're, you know, using their salaries to get their kids through college and so on. But I looked at the broader picture of investment and thought to myself, this is not what the world needs right now is another deodorant. We have plenty of them. They're doing just fine. Thank you. And it struck me, I think, at that point that as important as business is to dealing with complex social problems, and I believe that it definitely has a role to play and I very much value the discipline and disciplines that are inherent in running a business and thinking about business, but that the the greater needs of society were not for, for the most part, improving private products, but for addressing the deeper social concerns that affect all of us and social issues that affect all of us. It's interesting, and I ask that because for many people who do the kind of work that is looking to repair the earth and our society and systems to make it more regenerative for the planet and equitable for the people who live here usually have some kind of a defining experience or moment or you know something in their childhood that led them to that kind of space and it sounds like you've had a life that's reinforced this idea of doing what you can to do good in the world i believe so And I'm very grateful to have this set of skills as well as this passion to be able to apply what I do to making that kind of contribution. And it's where your new book through Chelsea Green Publishing, Systems Thinking for Social Change, I really connected with it and enjoyed it, what I've worked through so far, because I'm taking my time to really apply what I've been reading And our interview today kind of snuck up on me as I was learning so much chapter to chapter. But you work on presenting a way for people who want to work on bigger issues to be able to model what's going on in a way that it doesn't matter what level they're engaging at or what particular problem they're working with, whether it's, you know, financial or social or experiential that you can sit down and use the tools that you've presented to start creating models that then provide something that I think is very important, which is a narrative that allows people to understand their role and engage in a broader vision, which is where a project that I'm working on is about developing some radical permaculture experiments for people who want to do things like live without electricity or to go gasoline free in their lifestyle. And in working through some of those, one of the on the ground realities is that most projects never launch. Those that do after five years, the ones that still exist after that time, very often are dysfunctional and won't make it another five years to make it that 10 year anniversary. They've, They've kind of gone away by then. And I find that having a way to show what's happening and to develop a compelling story around that really can get people engaged in a way that they might not by just facts and figures on the page. And I'm wondering how you came to apply this very technical idea 
of modeling using systems thinking in order to develop that narrative to create change within society? Well, I think you point to something that is very, very important and often lost, which is that systems thinking is much more than thinking. It has not only a cognitive component to it in terms of, you know, what are the principles of how systems function and how systems evolve, but there are also emotional sides to it. We're very attached to the way we think. We believe we're doing the best we can and we get very frustrated and surprised when our efforts don't seem to culminate in the kind of results that we expect. And I believe that systems thinking, when done well, is very much about storytelling, about, first of all, understanding the story of why, despite our best efforts, we're not being as successful as we think we can be or or want to be. And also telling stories out into the future of how we envision things being But as you point out, envision things being in a way that is sustainable. So I was drawn to your observation that a lot of these initiatives, if they do get off the ground, often don't go longer than than five years or, or perhaps 10. And I think that in applying systems thinking in a planning way towards strategic planning, we can more effectively anticipate what we need to do not only in the short term to move things forward, but also also what we have to anticipate and prepare for in terms of a sustainable approach so that we don't put all of our effort into the front end and then get exhausted when we get blindsided by limits or problems that if we had anticipated them more early on, we would have been more effective in addressing. And that kind of short-sightedness is something that you refer to repeatedly about the quick fixes. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's something that I've seen so many times. And especially that, you know, when that quick fix works, the reinvestment of energy and effort into that, because it seems like it's going to get, you know, the organization or the individual out of the hole that they're in. And yet it ultimately only makes it worse because of the way that it relieves pressure that, oh, well, now we're having the success. So this is what we should focus on. And then three months, six months down the line, when that fix is exhausted, there's nothing there to take its place. Yes. And I think that's a very important point, as you say. And I make the observation that it's important to distinguish between quick fixes and small successes. We need small successes. We need to be able to demonstrate to ourselves, to the people who support us, to our funders and potential funders, that what we're, we're doing demonstrates some kind of results in the fairly short term. They may not necessarily be results in terms of a quantifiable outcome. They may be more results in terms of building new relationships, building new capacities, building new skills, cultivating new ways of thinking. But those are leading indicators toward the kind of quantifiable, measurable uh, results that we and, and others want to see down the road. Small successes are always designed within the context of a long-term strategy. While quick fixes, as you point out, are the solutions that we can find in the short run that move things forward in the short run, but also produce those unintended consequences that can make things worse down the road and often do. So I I often give the example of food aid where we feel compelled, understandably, to send food to people who are starving around the world, but there are unintended consequences to food aid that can actually increase starvation over time unless we really recognize what are the ripple effects that that food aid produces and to what extent those ripple effects could undermine people's ability to nourish themselves over time 
So it's it's very, very important to think both short-term and long-term. And I think it's often a mistake in systems, uh, people who interpret systems thinking, to say that, oh, this is about thinking long-term, not short-term. It's actually thinking long-term and thinking short-term within the context of a long-term strategy which is very different than thinking short-term without considering the long-term. And as a permaculture practitioner, I feel sometimes that we, within the community, kind of get caught between the short and the long-term without developing the bridge to get us from where we are to where we want to go, that it becomes a vision of what we would like to create. But because many of us are coming to this field and the idea of doing regenerative work in a way that is unfunded or underfunded financially, mm-hmm. though, you know, we may have a ton of education and experience and great networks, the monetary resources are just not available. And so we wind up hitting that financial limit in trying to implement these ideas and then turn back to the short term and trying to develop and grow in place in a way that from the nonprofit world, I'm used to the idea of like mission creep. And as certain projects take off, it can wind up leading an organization away from what their original mission was. Right. And, you know, two or three years later, they look at it and they go, well, we're now doing this thing that has nothing to do with why we were started. Right. And then to step that back with the permaculture community in my own work and some other people I know, that we wind up spending so much time making it to the next day or the next project that the long-term work gets missed. Even though we talk all the time about long-term, multi-generational planning, that that may help develop a vision of where we want to go and how to get there, but it doesn't help us step from where we are onto that road. I think that it, it helps people to understand that there are different systemic strategies, if you will, and I, and I identified two of them in the book. One of them is taking this concept of limits to growth, which perhaps a lot of your listeners are familiar with, where you try to grow something, but then you have to consider what are the limits to that growth and how do you invest on the basis of short-term improvements in addressing the limits before they become a real serious problem. So thinking about scale-up, before scale-up becomes a problem, thinking about constraints to capacity and investing to deal with those constraints before they actually slow you down to the point where you can't get yourself up and running again. That's one way of thinking. The other way of thinking is we have to correct something. We have to solve a particular problem, achieve a particular goal, But we need to draw then from uh, really the world of business and total quality, which says that whenever you correct something, you always have to be thinking about continuous improvement. What are we going to do to reinforce our success over time? Because without having thought through that reinforcement, the tendency is to feel that there's less pressure to be successful as we make progress. So you start losing weight and then you get a little sloppy because you've lost a little bit of weight. We do tend to be reactive often to to our own situations. And there's a, a dynamic we call the taking the pressure off, the risk of taking the pressure off. We make progress, then we slow ourselves down. So how As we make progress, are we going to make sure that we not only keep the pressure on ourselves, but actually increase and stretch further so that we can not only resist that pressure to slow down, but actually maintain and increase momentum over time? I think of, I think it was Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the idea of sharpening the saw, that we have to continually be making those improvements and we can't coast or rest on our laurels, if you will, once we begin to achieve that success to be able to continue and grow and improve and invest in what it is that we're doing ourselves and our community and others in order to keep that momentum going. I do believe it's very, very important and my clients really have benefited from 
thinking about the long term even as they plan for the short term so that they're taking some of the resources that they might otherwise apply to just addressing what they can do in the short term to really preparing themselves for the long haul. And that takes discipline. You know, it's hard enough to to get going in the short run and we want to just kind of tap ourselves on the back and pat ourselves on the back and appreciate the progress that we are able to make. But as you point out, it's too easy to then hit some kind of wall down the road that we're not prepared for and uh, lose all the progress that we actually do gain in the short term. And one of the models that you present that really opened my eyes was the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And... As much as I've done formal research and other things and understand that correlation is not necessarily causation, that just because it appears that A leads to B does not mean that there is a connection, that too often it's easy to fall into that kind of thinking and not look at the bigger picture. We don't step back and find the perspective to really dig in and explore what's going on. It becomes almost a rote, I'm used to doing things a certain way, so that's the way that I'll always do them. I've seen these connections in the past, so those must be the connections in the present or in the future. And I'm wondering where the iceberg model came from and how how you developed that and the way that people, if you might share a little bit about how that idea works. Sure. You know, it's interesting. I don't know the origins of it. I believe it was developed in the 70s uh, as part of the work that was coming out of MIT. I'm not 100% sure about that. I know that we began using it and introducing it to people through the Innovation Associates programs in visionary leadership beginning in the late 70s and early 80s. The important insight here is that we tend to be drawn to the tip of the iceberg, what is most obvious, the individual events or fires or crises that consume a lot of our attention and a lot of our time, like a drought or a period of starvation in a particular country that we feel drawn to to send food to. However, as we step back from those individual events, we notice that the individual events are not isolated. They're actually part of a trend or pattern that occurs over a period of time. So increasing number of droughts, or uh, we notice that we send money or send food and in the short term it makes a difference, but then incidents of starvation tend to increase again often 10 or 15 years later, but in regularly recognizable patterns. And then if we dig underneath the recognition of those patterns of change over time, we begin to ask ourselves, well, why do those trends or patterns occur? Because if the trend or pattern is not a desirable one, we want to be able to reverse that trend going forward. So that's where the idea of system structure comes from, the bottom of the iceberg, the part we don't see, but nonetheless the the bulk of the issue, the underlying causes of the trends and and the events that we see more near and above the waterline. And system structure is the interdependencies of of all the different factors at play in the system. It's the mental models or underlying beliefs and assumptions that people hold about how things should work, despite the fact that they don't work that way. And also the underlying purpose of the system. What is the system actually designed to achieve? What is it achieving right now? which is often in contrast, quite serious contrast, with our espoused purpose, our express intentions for what we want to accomplish. So, for example, uh, when I've done work in homelessness, 
there is a difference between how you would design a system to end homelessness and the systems that have been in place in most areas, which are systems designed to help people cope with homelessness, to reduce the immediate suffering associated with it, but in so doing, actually unwittingly undermine the ability of people to end homelessness in their, through, because of the policies and approaches they use to help people cope with homelessness. So there are various levels of subtlety in, in these deeper structures and to the extent what the iceberg is basically pointing to is the, the more we can understand these underlying factors of non-obvious interdependencies, of underlying beliefs and assumptions, of purpose in use, if you will, the actual purpose the system is accomplishing versus its desired or the, the purpose that people desire it to have, once we start looking at the world through those lenses, we have a lot more ability to shift trends and to change events into the future. It was fascinating for me when I was reading and ran across your description of espoused purpose versus current purpose. Mm -hmm. There's a conversation that I've had with the permaculture author Dave Jackie. We were talking about and using the language for individuals of espoused values versus governing values. Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. That idea of there's what we what we project into the world, but then there's what we're actually doing. Yes. And for many people, there's a gulf between those two, and that ultimately we'd like to see the two of those be the same. Mm-hmm. But because of many of the systemic issues that we encounter, we may never be able to actually bring them completely into alignment. Something as simple as you know driving a car may go against what our core values are, but because of the the society we live in. We need transportation, and at the moment, America has a huge focus on car culture, especially if you're trying to find affordable land, it's going to take you further and further away from public transportation. And, you know, how do we live with those differences as individuals? But then in reading your work, how do we understand what's espoused and what's and what's current within an organization or a system to help bring those closer into alignment and to understand the pieces that may or may not be able to be changed in the moment as we work within a period of transition. Well, I think that's a very good point. And I love the term governing values. I'd never had thought of the term governing as opposed to espouse, but it, it, I think it's a great way to describe the distinction. One of the big differences to me between natural systems and social systems is that human beings are actually much more complex in some important ways than other organisms in nature. And one of the characteristics of that complexity is that we have competing commitments within ourselves, not even within the, the larger social systems that we're a part of, where you know you have conservatives and you have liberals and you have different points of view about things, but even within ourselves, we have competing commitments. And for example, do we want to realize those benefits of helping people cope with homelessness, even though it means that it undermines our ability to end it? Do we want that ability to drive and depend on our cars because it brings us to live in less dense locations and hopefully you know, live off the grid, for example, or not as dependent on the way society is currently structured. Robert Fritz has a wonderful distinction he makes between fundamental choices, primary choices, and secondary choices. The fundamental choices are those deeper values that we have or higher aspirations. Primary choices are the major goals, uh, major things that we do in service of those values. And then secondary choices are the things we do to support our primary choices. And there are hierarchies of choice. Now, we get to decide what goes on what level of that hierarchy, and we make our own hierarchies. But we 
need to recognize that we do have to make choices, that we can't necessarily have it all or we can't necessarily have it all in the moment. And we have to decide what in our lives, uh, individually and as communities, is going to be subordinate to something that's more important. And as much as, you know, we'd like to think in terms of both and, yes, we can have our cake and eat it too. Yes, we can have the benefits of what we aspire to and the benefits of the status quo. Sometimes that's true and sometimes we can be creative and figure out both and solutions. Sometimes we're going to have to make trade-offs. I come from a background of improv and storytelling with my family and others. So when you were saying yes and, I'm so familiar with that idea. And it's something that's gotten adopted in many ways within the permaculture community because we're trying to have a more positive focus on change and what we can do. Mm -hmm. And not to live within like a fear-based mindset. And as a result of that, it focuses more on the beneficial. And sometimes I think we get lost in that. I know that I myself certainly do. I don't even have to talk for anybody else. I can say myself that sometimes being able to really examine what's going on and decide what do I need to give up now in order to make something work better or to set boundaries and say, I'm sorry, I can't do that because this is my priority now. I think that's so important. Focus, choice, boundaries. As much as we aspire to something that's limitless, we also do have to establish these definitions. One of the most powerful experiences I had in this work was when I did some systems mapping with a group of stakeholders in a city, multi-sectoral, private, public, nonprofit, and we were looking at, in this case, also the issue of homelessness. And after that meeting where people made some very important discoveries about what they were doing and how that fit into the bigger picture, both for good and not as constructively as they, they would have thought. We had dinner that night with the president of the Healthcare for the Homeless organization in that city, one of the largest cities in the U.S. And he had not been at this morning meeting, but his COO had participated in the meeting. And so we said, you know, well, what'd you hear? What'd you hear? And he said, well, my COO came back this afternoon. We had our board meeting and posed a question before the board. And the question was, what might we have to give up as an organization in order for the whole to succeed? And I had never heard the question put so baldly before. And I think it is just so hard for us to think that we may have to give something up in order to get something that's even more important to us. And yet we make those choices in our families all the time. You know, living in a marriage, we compromise on certain things that we wouldn't compromise if we weren't married or married to that particular person, but we do it because the benefits of the whole of that connection and partnership exceed the benefits of doing things our own way all the time, in which case we would be living on our own. So we kind of know about this need to let go of some things in order to have something more important, but it's still a hard one to, for us to come to terms with. One other piece of your book that was hard for me to wrap my head around until like the last 72 hours in some conversations that I've had was that in what I've read so far and worked through, I find that you place a lot of focus on our individual ability to change our mindset or our perspective or our role within a system. And that was strange for me because of some of the conversations I've had about how even though we have individual choice, there's a lot of research that is showing that there's kind of a, a systemic hegemony that kind of still determines where we are, the decisions that we're able to make, the resources that we have access to, and things like that, such as the 
study that followed children who were born as part of the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. And that revealed that poverty was the single largest decider on how those children's lives developed. It wasn't their exposure to drugs or the developmental damage in the womb beforehand, but the impact of poverty on them. Or another study that I saw was showing that if you are born wealthy and do poorly, you will still succeed as well as someone who was born poor but does everything right. And in looking at some of those studies and reading some of that research, I was wondering why you have such a focus on the individual within the work that we can do in our ability to impact larger social systems? I think it's a great question. And there is a lot of emphasis that I put on the idea of responsibility. And, you know, Jesse Jackson said something that that I thought was very helpful, which is we may not be responsible for being down but we are responsible for getting up. So what that means to me is sometimes we are or people are legitimate victims of these larger social pressures and dynamics, yet it's how we respond to those larger dynamics that can still help us shape our future. I did some work with a group of people who wanted to redesign the early childhood and development system in the state of Connecticut. And they had been basically requested by the governor to think about this redesign. Most of them were experts in the field of early childhood development and education. Their tendency was to think, okay, well, we're the experts and we're doing everything right, and we're going to tell them what they need to do differently in the state, the state government. And I asked them to kind of slow down a little bit and first think about how they might be contributing to the problem, not just the solution. And, you know, when you're working so hard in a field and you're being asked to apply your expertise to designing something different, the last thing you want to consider is that you may have a role in the problem. But one of my colleagues said something that I I find enormously helpful in the work I do, which is if you're not aware of how you're part of the problem, you can't be part of the solution. And in this case, what the folks who hung in there with this inquiry discovered is that they had adopted the mindset of the dominant culture against their own best experiences and instincts. So for example, they were thinking in terms of what are the quantitative results we need to demonstrate when they full knew that qualitative results were as important as quantitative ones. They were beginning to think about, well, what are the top-down policies we need to put in place when they themselves knew from experience that it was as important, if not more important, to build bottom-up community strength in addition to shaping policy top-down. So they were contradicting their own experience, but they would not know that if they would have thought, oh, we're just trying to you know, design something that we have no role in having created. To the extent that they saw that they were agreeing with the dominant culture and the dominant ways of thinking, that freed them up to be much more creative and impactful in their redesign work. Thank you for answering that and responding to what was something very hard for me to ask of you. In listening to what you just shared, it provides a lot of clarity for me in a lot of the work that I'm doing trying to be an ally to others in the work that they're doing when I come from a particular place and understanding in turn the way that I contribute to some of these issues. Man, that's really helpful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad. You know, it's not where we want to go. Our knee-jerk reactions are to assume that we're doing the best we can all the time 
and that when things don't work, it's because some other part of the system is messing things up. And it's actually enormously empowering to start with the question of how might I slash we be contributing to the very problem we want to solve because our greatest power, our greatest control starts with being aware of our own intentions, often conflicted, our own assumptions, our own behavior, which is not to say that it ends there, absolutely not, but our initial lever is in that self-reflection and internal shifting. The greatest leverage we have is in our ability to change ourselves and our reactions. We aren't responsible for the time and place in which we were born or to the parents who gave birth to us, but we have the ability and the choice to change the way that we act and react in the future. And only believing that we have that choice will enable us to take advantage of it. Right. If we're just spending all of our energy trying to change them out there, then we give up an enormous amount of the power that we do have. And I think about, I mean, myself included in this and so many others who just don't know that we have that ability and just not having an awareness of it and how just helping people find that within themselves can make a huge amount of change for individuals and systems. I believe it can. And one has to be careful that in doing it, it's not about shifting the blame from others to blaming ourselves. So I always talk about adopting that viewpoint of personal responsibility as an act of empowerment, not self-blame. I will have to listen to our conversation repeatedly to pull out everything that you shared with us today and the way that it can be applied to permaculture as a movement, as well as to the social systems and structures that we're looking to influence, but also in the ways that we can get right with ourselves so that in turn we can get right with others. One thing that I may may say in summary, um, when I looked at the permaculture principles, I was able to map many of them to the work that I do and the, and the principles that are in the book. But I believe that to the extent that permaculture started with an observation about how natural systems function, it can miss, if it isn't careful, the fact that human beings have some important differences from natural organisms and the way natural organisms operate. And I think that for permaculture to evolve in its ability to address social systems and improving social systems, it helps to have some of those distinctions made explicit. And I identified five of them for what it's worth. One is that while balance is the driving feedback relationship in nature, in particularly capitalist economies, the driving feedback relationship is growth or amplification. And that drive, that imperative for growth as opposed to balance is an important factor in the kinds of problems that we experience. A second is that our educational system tends to be linear still, dividing things into parts, optimizing the parts, not systemic in nature. And so we don't think about improving wholes by changing relationships among parts. We tend to be fascinated with symptoms as opposed to problems. We tend, as you pointed out earlier, to not be aware that what we do in the short term can have very different long-term impacts 
than, um, than would be suggested by the short-term impacts that we get. I think a third important distinction is this whole issue of blame and responsibility. In nature, there is no such thing as blame. There is no such thing as responsibility. But in our human makeup, there very much is. And our tendencies to blame versus take responsibility undermine the kind of self-regulation that we do see working so well in nature. The fourth is this whole idea of mental models and particularly the extent to which we're open to learning, to working with disconfirming data instead of trying to blot out disconfirming data, the extent to, we're, to which we're patient and persistent in the face of time delay instead of just wish that time delay didn't exist. And finally, in this idea of competing purposes, governing purposes versus espoused purposes. We're more complicated in that we experience both and we feel pulls between them. While in nature, animals don't feel those internal conflicts the way we do. So I think all of those factors need to be taken into account for people who want to take this, the, the principles that have worked so well in understanding natural systems and expand their application to social systems. I think that's the most important thing. The only reason I say that is I don't know the literature. <laughs> okay. So I don't know what people have been writing about applying permaculture and natural systems principles to living systems, and so particularly social systems. But it struck me that, you know, those were some distinctions that would be valuable. David, I really, really appreciate this conversation. It was challenging for me personally to work through this material with you and to talk about this because of my own personal perspective and some of the things that I've been exploring when it comes to applying permaculture broadly to social systems. But along the way, you've answered a lot of questions that I've had, and I feel that what you shared with us along the way, and in particular your closing five points, will be of great value to the permaculture community. So thank you for taking this time to join me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for being curious and giving me this opportunity. And that was David Peter Stroh. You can find out more about him and his work at AppliedSystemsThinking.com. If you'd like to learn more about his book, there's information at his website, or with the publisher, ChelseaGreen.com. You'll find those and other links in the resource section for this episode at thepermaculturepodcast.com. After speaking with David, there were a lot of pieces that struck a chord with me, but two in particular that I keep turning back to are regarding that idea of governing versus espoused values and the need for personal responsibility. Our governing and espoused values have this space between them, something Ethan Hughes refers to as the integrity gap. And this exists for individuals, and organizations, as well as systems. On reflection, this shouldn't seem surprising, but how often do we think about that gap? Do you ever consider the impact that that space between desires expressed and actual activity have on your life and the choices you make? For a long time, I didn't. It takes concentrated effort. And thinking this way, seeing the big pictures, requires serious intent initially, over and over again until it becomes a habit. Then, once it's normalized into our daily practice, it turns from ongoing moment-to-moment -moment consideration to something that requires periodic reevaluation to ensure that we don't fall into that lull space once the pressure stops, as Peter mentioned, or to allow old habits to creep back in. We become the guard at the gate of our thinking, watching how our thoughts lead to action and how those actions build towards real meaningful goals in our lives, as well as within the organizations and systems that we're a part of. As that gap shrinks, as our espoused values and our governing values become ever closer, the easier it is to take responsibility for our actions. And responsibility is something that Bill Mollison implores us to have in the designer's manual, where he writes, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. Make it now. 
This idea Bill calls the prime directive of permaculture. Though it speaks to ethical actions, it is on page one of the big black book of permaculture, coming before the ethics that we commonly think of, before discussing any principles. This is what one of the founders of this idea opens his seminal work with. That we must make this decision now is in bold, and speaks not just to this moment, but also the future, our children. Though we might fall to individualistic perspectives and see this as solely something that we as one person are supposed to do, I also read this as a collective call to action. That taking responsibility for our own existence includes our own lives, but also reaches out to our community, to our genetic and adopted descendants, but also to those who live in our communities, our neighborhoods, the future generations that call a place home with us, in the house or apartment or other space that we inhabit, but also those across the street or down it, or perhaps even on the other side of the town, all those different ways that connect us, that as we take that responsibility, we bring it to others. As we care for our own existence, we help others care for theirs. There's plenty of talk about the other ethical entreatments, such as earth care or people care, and an ongoing debate of what exactly the third ethic is in the current era, but I don't hear this prime directive in discussion very often. Let's talk about it more. In thinking about responsibility and what taking hold of it for our existence and that of our children would look like, I don't have an answer for any life but my own and the role that my choices have with my family. If we do start talking about what this looks like for each of us, together we can start to find more answers and more solutions. So, simply, what does personal responsibility mean for you? Have you recognized how you're a part of the problem? What works? What doesn't? How do you correct for the impacts that you have in the space that you call home, the organizations, the systems that you're a part of? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. We can talk about it more and figure out different ways to live, different ways to practice permaculture from the space that each of us already inhabit. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. You can also drop something in the post, the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. As we draw this to a close, a few announcements. The first is a reminder that Free the Seeds is on March 19th, 2016 at the Flathead Valley Community College in Kalispell, Montana. Go out and enjoy a day of workshops that include seed saving, beekeeping, seed starting, food preservation, and, as you might expect, permaculture. You'll find a link in the resource section of the show notes, or you can head directly to freetheseedsmt.com. The second is that on June 18th, 2016, is the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence at the Riverside Project near Charlestown, West Virginia. Michael Judd is the keynote speaker. I'll be hosting an in-person roundtable recording. And there are workshops that include Living in the Gift with Seppi Garrett from Seppi's Place, Children in Permaculture with Jen Mendez of Permikids, and Broadacre Agriculture for Permaculture Practitioners with Ethan Strickler. Tickets are currently on sale, so pick yours up today. As we draw this episode to a close, the next interview is with Nadi Passau of Jewish Farm School for our first conversation on Judaism and Earth Care, and after that, an introduction to the Philadelphia Orchard Project with Robin Mello. Until the next time, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.